Welcome to Uplifting Women Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net, as well as Holly Teska Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Join our co-hosts, Holly Teska and Kristen Strunk, thought partners in the world of leadership, equality, and personal and professional development. Listen as they bring stories of inspirational women and their allies who are working every day for authentic leadership, equality, and inclusion in business, education, and community. These are the stories of the people whose mission it is to ensure others are seen, heard, and respected. They've overcome challenges in the workplace and the world or supported other women in doing so. Holly and Kristen are committed to uplifting women's voices, sharing inspiration, advice, and maybe even a few laughs from women and their allies about the work they are doing to promote inclusion and equality in our world. They believe that by sharing stories of challenge and triumph, we can all make the world a better place as we inspire others to step fully into their personal leadership space. We are so happy you have joined us today for our conversation. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today on the Uplifting Women podcast. This is Holly Tesca, and I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Strunk. Today, we're honored to bring you a conversation with Audrey Denneke. She's an exceptional coach, skilled in executive development, and Audrey is also an organization development consultant and career transition coach. She holds a master's of science in organization development and a bachelor's in industrial and organizational psychology from Loyola University in Chicago. Audrey's currently writing her memoir, which I hope to see published soon. And giving you a tiny spoiler alert, I'll tell you I'm looking forward to reading her book. It's a fascinating story of a woman coming into her own during a changing time in the history of our country. Audrey's an activist and champion for equality for all, and especially for women. In addition, she is a cherished friend. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. So Audrey, welcome (laughs) to Uplifting Women. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you. I'm so very pleased to be here. I don't even know where to begin to ask you. I don't even know where to start. I know your story, and I'm so excited to talk about this. But why don't you kind of take us back to the beginning? You know, what really sparked your interest in, well, first of all, you know, women's equality and bringing uh, equal rights to the workplace and the world? You know, I know you've got stories that go back to when you were even a little girl that were that are pretty powerful. So why don't you just start where you want? It is a story, a personal story, and it really begins with a trip I had with my grandmother to go visit some friends of hers in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and it was a farm, and my grandmother was a very hardworking woman. Uh, My grandmother and grandfather were restauranteurs, and by that I mean they had a little diner near uh, Riverview in Chicago. They were living during Depression times, so things were tough, right? And my grandparents had a reputation, actually hobos would come, what what they used to call hobos and the way that my grandmother talked about them, used to come to the back door of the diner and ask for food. And my grandparents would do what they can to feed them all the time. And so you, and so, so part two of this, of my own activism, and it is a question, how are activists made? A lot of us, I mean, my father was in World War II. We all lived through the civil rights movement. We all lived through 
the Vietnam War, uh, people in my age group, but not everyone becomes an activist. So part of the question is, how do you become an activist? And I think part of it may be for some, like me, this early awakening. So I went with my grandmother to visit these friends of hers that they had in Wisconsin. They had these friends had a farm. My grandparents would share some of their food tickets during the depression with the farm people and they would share the vegetables and some of the things there for my, my grandparents to feed their own family, but also to help with the restaurants a little. So um, we were going there for a visit. Um, it was around harvest time. So my grandfather was gonna help in the fields. And uh, on the day that I had my first little awakening, um, all the women were up at dawn, all the men were up at dawn, everyone uh, went to their, you know, the men went to the fields, women went and started cleaning the house and preparing the house, and I was taking off sheets with my grandmother and doing chores in the house, and then went out with, with the children that were there to the barn to milk cows and all of this kind of thing. So about Probably early, like mid-morning, women, I was called by my grandmother to come into the kitchen and to help prepare meals, like peeled potatoes for my part and things like that. And there must have been like 10 women in the small kitchen, the small farming house uh, kitchen. And they were baking bread and they were making kielbasa and they are making all types of vegetable dishes, platters and platters of food which we took out to a dining room table in the next room, set it all off beautifully. Um, I've never, it was to me like a holiday spread, the, the amount of food that was out there on that table. We heard some steps outside the door and the men were washing their hands and arms, getting ready to come in and sit at the table. They sat at the table and I went to go sit down at the table. And my grandmother said, no, we don't, we don't sit here. And she dragged me back into the kitchen. And I was, you know, I was really upset because I was hungry. We had been up since dawn, right? And I didn't understand it at all. But, you know, the men started to eat their meal. And then all of a sudden they would have this little click, click, click on the cups. And then the women would, uh, it wasn't like a wedding click, 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 where there was a lot of kissing going on. It was the sign for the women to come up with more food out and bring more food out to the table. So this went on until the men were, were finished. They ate all the food that the women had prepared. So the women had to make an entire different meal. And this experience, uh, we didn't, you know, we had much, a much lesser meal and just kind of leftovers, right? But this experience really troubled me. And I talked to my grandmother about it. She tried to explain it to me. It didn't make any sense. It is so true that and in, in, in my memoir, I write, you know, if some, a person doesn't sit at the table or a group of people, in this case, my grandmother, my beloved grandmother and her beloved friends did not get a sit, seat at that table after working just as hard as those men. If, if women don't sit at the table, then inequality sits there. Mm. And I know that metaphor of the table is common, but I experienced it as a 10-year-old little girl in a way that re reverberated, I think, through my whole life has reverberated. What a story. My gosh. So that was really your first look into 
we're not all, even though we're supposed to all be created equal, it's really just lip service. And also being the oldest of a large family that ultimately was 12 children and experiencing the economic stresses of that, that my parents went through and we all went through and going to a Catholic high school where some of the women came from Lake Forest, some of the girls came from Lake Forest, and they could buy two or three uniforms. And then on non-uniform day, they could wear beautiful clothes. And, you know, I, as I, as a children, a child in that kind of environment, I didn't have an extra uniform and I didn't have fancy clothes to wear. And the lack, the, the sense of lack, even though I ended up in the women's movement, I did end up working on hunger issues and other kinds of issues because when you know deprivation and and you know there's an there's a difference between you and someone else not that they weren't fine young women you know but there there were there was suffering there you know when you when you're in that kind of situation and it's not only me it was other members of my family right I worked for it my my parents were the ones with the brainy idea that we should all go to Catholic high school. Uh, and um, But in order to do that, we all had to work. And we all had part-time jobs, but we all also, several of us did work study at um, uh, tuition jobs at school, you know, yeah. where my favorite job was, was working in the snack bar. <laughs> because the, uh, the kind of like, brother that ran that thing allowed us to get ice cream after I shift. So <laughs> there was a few benefits there, but, um, but that meant fewer after oh, extracurricular kinds of activities as well. Sure. Right? Yeah. So. so your opportunities were limited because you had to help your parents make ends meet. Yep. To get yep. food on that, on our table. Right. So that's a really interesting story about, you know, the first, recognition that you had of this division of the way people were being treated. So take me, you know, take me into your young womanhood and, you know, tell me what really got you, what pulled you into activism at that point and where did it go from there? In the early 1970s, um, there were such things as consciousness raising groups I started to, I was invited to one. I think I was starting to go to some Lake County Now chapter meetings and someone told us about a consciousness raising group. And so a woman in a town near me was hosting one and they needed to build a group. So I went and that was a a formative experience too, because I knew about my own senses of what's fair and what's not fair. But I also heard from other women many of whom were educated, you know, beyond high school, which was not easy at that point in time, had jobs, were being uh, passed over for jobs, right? Were certainly getting paid less than the men that, that, you know, they were working with. Uh, Many of these women in this group, I think I was the only single woman in the group and the rest of them were married. Um, At the time, all of them were happily married. It wasn't that they weren't happy in marriage, they were um, certainly not happy in their work and not being feeling very satisfied about their work. 
And one of the first things we we talked about was our bodies ourselves. I don't know if you remember that book. Um, I do. I actually, yeah. I actually do. I haven't. It heard was that. a little. Re- initially, we just had a little pamphlet, and then ultimately, it became this kind of big red book, right? And our and it was really about learning about our body. You know, learning about the women's woman's body, our anatomy, childbirth, men- menstruation. You know, what, whatever. All these things that were at that time not talked about that much, right? And our parents weren't always that great about being able to express those things. So um, that was really interesting and mind-opening and and um, helped me with doctor's appointments and how to approach things with doctors. And as we, the three of us probably recall, at that time, all gynecologists were males. So there were very few women in medical school and especially very few women in, in, as gynecologists. So, so that was one of the places where I think it deepened my understanding of some of the issues by especially work issues, which were important to me. Um, but also at the same time, I started going to Lake County Now chapter meetings. And so the story of being in a, in a being an activist and being in a movement is I was quickly moved into like being an officer, uh, being the chair of the rape task force, being, I didn't know anything about these issues, you know, but I had to learn about them. And that was a, a trend or a thread throughout my women's movement days is that there was a need if they felt like you had a warm body and you had some skills, they pushed you into that, invited you into those roles, right? And supported you, really. I mean, I, I always felt supported in, in learning. And, you know, I was officer, I was a treasurer, I was a secretary, I was head of a couple of different task forces there in Chicago now. And probably the next story I should tell is uh, my first big activist moment which is when the president of of Lake County Now said, you know, we've been invited to do this thing and I have a conflict and want you to go. Uh, the Adrian Dominican sisters are are have a proxy. They have, uh, have stock with a pharma company in the area and we need you to go and represent Chicago Now, I mean, Lake County Now with uh, the Adrian sisters. And the issue was infant formula. Uh, unethical practices of marketing infant formula in third world countries. And so I was to go to the stockholder meeting uh, with this Adrian. And uh, my sense was I was just supposed to sit next to her and, you know, have my now badge on. <laughs> and that was it. And as introductions were being made and people, the meeting was starting, she, she hands me this piece of paper and says, well, maybe you should read this, you know, review this before you have to read it. And <laughs> my mouth went open and, I, I, you know, and um, I was like 23 years old, but I had never been, this is a huge auditorium. You know, you, anybody who's going to a stockholder meeting knows it's just cram full of uh, investors, usually very large investors, but also very small investors like the Adrians. I don't know how many stocks they had, right? So, I, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm quickly trying to read this document. And, uh, and so I could, you know, at least be sound halfway intelligent when I was reading it. 
And of course, there's reports about the status of the company, blah, blah, blah. And then the big investors talk. And then it's the turn, the turn of the small investors who want to come up to the mic and ask a question or read a statement to come up. And so I finally got a hold of a mic and I'm standing there and I s- start to read this document. My hands shaking, my paper shaking, my voice is shaking, my knees are shaking because, you know, the, the sense of the moment got to me. And, and then it took me like maybe a couple of sentences and the thought came to me, listen, you're here for those babies. You know, you're here for these infants. So I took a breath and I I just kind of calmed myself and I continued to read this really well-written statement by the Adrian, Adrian Dominican women. As I finished reading the statement, the room was extremely quiet. And like the, you could hear a pin drop, truly. And then the chairman got up and went to the mic and said, you know, said some words about how they recognized that they've been, at that point, apparently they had been getting a lot of feedback about this process. And he's, he made a, cu- a couple of positive comments. And then he said, well, we'd like to meet with the Adrians at the end of the meeting because they were the stockholders, I guess. And truly they didn't want to probably talk to now. <laughs> but um, it, it was the my first active, my major activist act. No, I was doing things at the chapter level, but this was the first public action. How did you feel after after you said the statement and then came to the realization, oh my gosh, now I'm really, I've just stepped into it in a big <laughs> way. And I've got to imagine knowing, you know, the time in history, this room was probably very heavily weighted with men. Yep. You could count the women on one hand in that room. That's the best way to say it. I think it just increased my commitment to doing it. In fact, because of the response that we got. And so it was good that it was a generally a positive experience too, because sometimes the first activist action that someone engages in is um, much more <clears throat> under duress and more uh, a lot more fear has risen. But for me, it was a perfect first step. Audrey, what I'd really <laughs> like to understand is for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with the acronym now, okay. um, if you would be willing to give us a little bit of history and context for that launching pad for your activism. So now means National Organization for Women, and it um, started, um, well, Betty Friedan wrote a book back in, trying to remember, 1963, 66, something around that, called The Feminine Mystique, and it sold three million uh, copies and it was really about the women the generation before me and the emptiness of of that kind of period for women and Betty Friedan and a number of uh, uh, President Kennedy um, shortly after that time started the Commission on the Status of Women and Betty Friedan and a number of very highly educated highly placed women at for that time we're on this commission on the status of women who are trying to improve the status of women. And they became increasingly frustrated 
at the lack of support, the lack of seriousness of the work of the commission took. And one night, Betty Fernandez said, we're going to start an organization. And they came up with that name. And the and now, as we called it for short, was was um, started, and it quickly grew. I think in part because of Betty's book with three million copies sold, right? In her first edition of the book, there were women across the women. It was like a grass fire of um, of interest in it, and so now quickly kept growing. Uh, their initial issues were around equity, employment equity, but also educational equity. Um, one of the next presidents of now was Wilma Scott Heidi, and she was an academian. You know, she was fighting for the right of women to have access to college, other, the full uh, course loads, because sometimes even when more women were going, went to college at that point, they were pushed into a certain type of courses, which you can imagine um, what they were, not STEM, what we would call STEM courses now, right? Or anything like that. So now quickly grew. And back by about um, 1973, now created a um, their first national office in Chicago, Illinois. And I actually ended up becoming a staff person there as a bookkeeper. When I went to my first convention, again, it's a, my, there's so many firsts when you're in a movement like that. I went to my first now convention in Houston, and the issues were everything from reproductive rights to medical, general medical care for women, lesbian rights, a lot of employment issues, the whole specter of equal pay for equal work and any number of things. And it was like a um, mind-opening experience for me because I didn't really understand the culture. I was born in Chicago, but grew up in a little town in Lake County, Illinois, all white, very um, all Catholic or Christian. So no exposure beyond my little world. That convention was a, a mind-shifting kind of convention. It was mind-opening, mind-blowing, whatever you would say at the time, right? uh, um, experience, and I learned so very much from it. Uh, you know, that's, I think, a, a reason to get involved in uh, and move out of our comfort zones because there's so much to learn. A lot of the biases that I held that I didn't even know I was holding at the time were like broken right open. As you talk about this point in history, as you talk about launching into what has very clearly become not only a cause of activism for you, but a real heartfelt reason to be a champion for women's rights, underrepresented groups. I'm just thrilled that at that point in time, you were able to connect with not only the people who were feeling the same way that you were, but also the resources that helped you get educated and learn. I'm curious how you might even encourage people right now to get involved or what you might say to people who are thinking, 
I might want to be an activist. I might want to be active in something, but I don't know that I could commit to doing something like that. What advice do you have for people who are interested in that? I think start just going to meetings of causes or, or organizations, you know, start where you feel safe. Um, League of Women Voters. I mean, if there isn't a cause now that we all need to be concerned about, it's the one of the most important one is voting. They have accomplished so very much over time. I would say start to by going just going to a meeting, take a friend, you know, so you don't feel scared walking in the door, right? And you know, you're not going to, no one's going to come up and force you to do anything. It's just going to be a matter of um, listening and learning. And I would say, pay attention to what calls your, you, where is your energy? What are you, what are the, what are the things that you notice? If there's a concern you have in your community, go to a village board meeting and, and address it. If you have a women's concern, you know, look online and see what groups in my area take care to address this issue. Find out if, you know, a lot of it will probably just be Zoom right now. Maybe in a couple more months, it'll be back in, in the room. Zoom is a very safe place to do it. Read what people are saying and then just take a first step, you know. So uh, mostly those organizations, all, uh, all organizations right now need help. You will be helped. I didn't know anything. I was high school educated. I had an excellent education at my high school and I had just started my first jobs as as a accounts receivable clerk initially and I wasn't really well versed in women's issues at, at the at the front end but as soon as you were given response responsibilities you were asked to help with something someone was always there to help me through my whole almost 14 years in the women's movement I was asked to uh, produce a videotape I don't have a clue about how to produce a videotape was on women in carpentry and helping women to get into non-traditional careers. So they paired me with a woman filmmaker. And what I knew that they needed was I knew who we needed to talk to and what those questions were and what kind of sites we should go to. And so I talked to, a, and we talked about, okay, what are three different places we could go to, to help women understand what are the realities? Because everybody who thought about a non-traditional career wanted to be a carpenter, but they had really romantic notions about what carpentry is, right? Filmed um, on a high-rise um, building site. And we showed what the apprentice was doing, the woman apprentice. We filmed her on that site. Then we went to a cabinet making shop. Because women were just getting into apprenticeships at that point. And we filmed her. And, and the fun thing we did was, and I got to go into this basket and down into the deep tunnel that was being built at the time. So I'm aging myself to see what uh, women who were carpenter form makers did down in the deep tunnel. So I had never really done interviewing before either. And so there I was with a camera, <laughs> you know, in my face and career orientation film, um, got an award at Northwestern University's Film Festival, so we could say it's an award-winning film. I'll say this about apprenticeships, too. When we first started, there were less than 1% women in apprenticeship programs, and we were trying to um, help move poor women, in particular women of color, and help them move into apprenticeship programs and apprenticeship jobs 
that paid like minimally $20 an hour at the time as an apprentice. Coalition building, another piece of advocacy. Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor was trying to break open apprenticeships at that time. Uh, The woman who was the regional director of the Women's Bureau, a woman from the Chicago Urban League who was like the uh, employment person, and me, I was the pre-apprenticeship program director for the Midwest Women's Center in Chicago at the time. And the three of us would walk into these apprenticeship meetings, the only three women, over and over. And the first few meetings, we just listened and watched, you know. And then we, we split up and the three of us started having meetings with um, these apprenticeship coordinators about why they weren't bringing women into into these apprenticeship programs. At that time, the office, uh, the OFCCP, now don't ask me what that is anymore, <laughs> they had a law that any uh, contractor that had a federal job had to hire women and minorities on their, on their, on their jobs, right? So our job, the three of us, three women, would go to these different apprenticeship coordinators and push for minority hires or, or young women or... Just, you know, I would sit there and and you can see, but everybody else doesn't know. I mean, I have these little dimples. And when I was younger, they were deeper. <laughs> and I, I would sit across from these apprenticeship coordinators and they thought I would be a pushover. And I was sweet and I was very polite until they didn't cooperate. And then I brought the power of the Women's Bureau and the Urban League and my own organization and a lot of other women's organizations behind me. And we, excuse the French, but we weren't taking any shit. (laughs) We were, and then charges were filed. But did I know how to do any of that? No, I learned, you know, it's a lot of it is common sense. If you you study the law, you understand what needs to happen. I graduated high school in the mid seventies. That's when all of this was percolating. And I will tell you, having been at an all girls Catholic high school, there was lots of conversation about what was happening Mm -hmm. in the world um, around women in the world of work. I mean, was it 1974 or 75 before a woman could have a credit card without her husband? I know. You know, people don't remember this stuff. I was talking with some of my nieces, adult nieces, talking about this. And I mentioned something about credit. And one of my nieces said, what do you mean, you know, about not getting a card? And they have no clue that we couldn't get a mortgage. We couldn't get a car. We couldn't buy a dress with a credit card um, or or slacks or whatever we're going to buy, except for it might have been someone's husband's name if they had a credit card or their father's name. You know, but it wouldn't be in your own name. No, there's yeah. so many things. The pill didn't come up out till in the 70s, I believe. Right. So, so, and then there was the U.S. pregnancy discrimination law that went into mm-hmm. effect in 1979. I mean, women couldn't serve on juries. I mean, it's just <laughs> you could get fired for being pregnant. You know, I mean, it just blows my mind. This wasn't that long ago. No. This was not that long ago. This was, and the scary thing is, as we are hearing, women are losing ground. Yes, they you are. Know, we um, still don't have equal pay for equal work. No. And you know, I think they said we're at seventy-seven cents. I have a button here. Back in my day, we had we had these little buttons, and, and is where's my 29 percent, twenty-nine cents? Well, they now say we won't get to equity of equal pay at the rate we're going until 2070, 
27-0. That's 50 more years. If we aren't careful and if we don't get involved in whatever issues you care about, whether I, and I think voting is a big one right yeah. now. Uh, if we don't get involved, we may not have a democracy. And if people think, oh, I'm white, I'm safe. No. Uh, oh, I'm white, I'm a female. No, that's not going to get you anything. It's What is that uh, wonderful Jewish saying about, you know, um, maybe it wasn't a Jewish one, but it's like I, I watched them take away the Jew and, you know, and then I watched them take away this person, the black person. And, and then when they came to take away me, no one was there. You know, if we don't step in and help each other, we don't care about everyone's equity. We'd be foolish to think that our equity is going to be saved. Truly an amazing story. You know, I know that you're still working on your memoir. When you get that finished and published, I'd love to have you back to talk about some more of the stories and the things that surfaced for you. Um, Any parting words that you want to leave to our listeners? Certainly the message is coming through loud and clear. Get involved in the things that you're passionate about, but pick something. Become educated on that topic. The other thing is, if you had been involved, tell your story. You know, so women should start. They don't have to write a book. You can write a pamphlet. You can write a few t- pages. There's um, great value, I think, in writing it down, not only for yourself, because it is reaffirming, yeah, I did all this. Yeah, you know, I can do all this. There's more I can do going forward, right? Yeah. And that's such an important thing about storytelling, Audrey. You know, I think we all learn to understand people and their perspectives when we know their story. And I know you have a working title for your memoir. Is that something you want to share? Yes. Invisible Women Leading from the Middle of the Women's Movement. You know, we need the women at the top who are the visionaries and maybe have the context to get things moving but without the women in the middle, things will be would be stalled, right? You know, so yeah. we need the energy, the intelligence, the creativity of all women to get things yes. done. The world needs everyone to participate 100% if we're going to solve the challenges that exist today. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Audrey. We are very excited to have you. And we will include uh, contact information for you in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening in on this latest episode of Uplifting Women podcast. Holly and Kristen appreciate your dedication to Uplifting Women and look forward to you joining them again soon. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Please visit your favorite platform where you found this podcast to leave a review. If you are an uplifting woman or a man who champions women's success with a story to share, Kristen and Holly would love to talk to you. Please visit upliftingwomen.net and leave us a message.